Hello and welcome to Upbeat Live. My name is Sarah Cahill and it's a great, great pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me today. We have an exciting program this evening, Mahler's Blumina, Berg's Three Pieces for Orchestra and Brahms' Concerto Number no. 1 for Piano, all conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas with the great Emmanuel Axe as the piano soloist in the Brahms. Let's begin with Alban Berg and his three pieces for orchestra. This is the, actually the second piece on tonight's program, composed between 1913 and 1915, revised in 1929. That's the version we hear tonight. Because even after almost a century, uh, Berg can be challenging for some of us. When we think of Berg, when you think of Berg, you probably think of his great operas, uh, uh, Wozzeck and Lulu and his violin concerto. Um, he was a meticulous composer and worked slowly and carefully, which partly accounts for the fact that he wrote relatively few compositions. He wasn't prolific in the way the other two composers on tonight's program were. And also he died uh, at the age of 50. Uh, but so he, he wrote very carefully and um, took his time. Berg was 19 when he started studying with Arnold Schoenberg, who had a tremendous influence on him, profound influence. He started these three pieces for orchestra in 1913, and he had hoped to have them ready for uh, Arnold Schoenberg's 40th birthday as a birthday present. But he kept working and revising, finally finishing in 1915. He wrote to Schoenberg that he was often brooding over certain bars for days on end. The score has a dedication to my teacher and friend, Arnold Schoenberg, with immeasurable gratitude and love. Before we get into the work itself, I thought we might listen to Michael Tilson Thomas, who we'll hear tonight, talking about conducting this piece and how he thinks of it. This next week with the Chicago Symphony, I'm doing one of my all-time favorite pieces, the Baird Free Orchestral Pieces. This is about as far as music can get while still keeping an emotional hold on us. And the piece is such an exploration of ambiguous and ambivalent feelings of all sorts, which kind of rise out of the depths and reach shattering conclusions before dissolving in the most eerie way. I mean, this is kind of like the most wonderful and baddest music anybody ever wrote. I mean, this is really looking into the nature of the borderline of sanity and what happens when our obsessions get hold of us and lead to attractive but ultimately very destructive places. And it's really a vertiginous experience to be right on the edge of this with this huge orchestra which is playing music that sounds like, like Mahler's 13th symphony, perhaps, and kind of guiding all these currents of music and the incredible intricacy of the soloists and big splodges of sound played by brass and strings. And, and at the same time, so often, what I have to do is just beat these very slow beats Baird likes this, where you just be like this. Three, four, and inside of that beat, some people are going, 
And other people are going. People going. And some people are going. And so on. You're kind of like the least common denominator, maybe, between all those things. And you have to like lay it down and kind of be aware of everybody, but you can't give in because the slightest little fluctuation on your part and this whole wonderful construction will start to come unglued. So it's a very interesting place to be. I love it. We just heard him describe this composition as Mahler's 13th symphony. And Mahler is certainly at the heart of Berg's three pieces for orchestra. Berg was at his funeral in 1911 and at the posthumous premiere of Mahler's Ninth Symphony in 1912. The ghost of Mahler hovers over the three pieces for orchestra, and Berg did conceive of the work as a symphony. He said that the first preludium was a sort of monumental opening movement, and the second, Reigen, can be considered a combination of the traditional slow movement with a scherzo-like movement. And the last, Marsh, the culminating finale. At the same time, these three movements are character pieces, similar to uh, what Schoenberg and Webern had been writing, in which each piece is a kind of microcosm and self-contained completely. So it's probably right that Berg titled these three pieces for orchestra rather than as a symphony. And Berg, more than anyone, acted as a kind of intermediary between late Romanticism and Modernism. If we think of Mahler as a real 20th century composer, a real modern composer, that is a way into these three pieces, that there's somehow a logical extension of Mahler and his symphonies. One might even say that Berg picked up where Mahler left off. The three pieces for orchestra takes Mahler's gift for transformation and counterpoint to an extreme. The orchestral forces that Berg demands are massive and complicated, and I would encourage you to go online and look at the score, which is there, because it's really, really fantastic. And it's just monumental. I mean, each page is just every line, something different going on. It's a little bit like looking at the score to Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, where there's just this, this everybody's doing something completely different, and it's this huge orchestra. Uh, twice as big an orchestra required um, for the, as the other two works on tonight's program. So four flutes, four oboes, four clarinets, uh, three bassoons, six horns, four trumpets, four trombones, and on and on and on. Big battery of percussion. And you'll hear that at the very beginning. Uh, and strings and glockenspiel and lots else. But it also allows him a full spectrum of colors and timbres from all these instruments, similar to what his teacher Arnold Schoenberg and his friend Anton Webern uh, achieved with what's called Klangfarben Melody, or uh, color, um, sound color melody, or timbre melody, in which a tune is passed between diverse instruments. So, for instance, from a piccolo to a cello, 
or uh, you hear that kind of those those um, that color spectrum a lot in tonight's piece, and it's a very different method from the traditional masses of instruments in the you know, what we think of as a 19th century symphony. This has so much more transparency. Preludium begins and ends with percussion, very quiet, and it's an incredible opening because it creates an atmosphere almost inaudible. It actually is sort of inaudible, uh, so you feel it viscerally before you actually hear it um, consciously. Begins with soft, unpitched percussion, tam-tam, cymbals, bass drum, snare drums, and then pitched percussion comes in, the timpani, um, and brings in other instruments. Uh, and fragments of melodies. But the first thing you really hear is this distinctive rhythm which unifies all three movements, brings them all together. We'll hear the, this rhythm throughout the three pieces, and it's the... Um, uh, what we know of is the sort of Mahler's Fifth Symphony and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony motif or rhythm. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, you know, which is, of course, in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, opens da-da-da-da, uh, and then in the uh, Mahler's Fifth Symphony, da-da-da-dun, da-da-da-dun, da-da-dun. So it's, it's that rhythm that you hear throughout this piece. So an homage to both Mahler and Beethoven. Uh, so this sequence of instruments, of, the, of instruments coming in one by one, starting with the solo tam-tam, is mirrored at the very end of this piece, of the preludium. And this is one of many, many examples of Berg's affection for uh, symmetry, for arch forms, for palindromes. So um, uh, he sometimes does the same backwards and forwards, and in this piece, it ends the way it began. Let's listen to the very opening of this first piece, Preludium, and this is again, um, you know, almost inaudible, the unpitched percussion. This is a recording with Michael Tilson Thomas and the San Francisco Symphony. It's, a, it's an amazing beginning, and the way he uses instruments, the flutter tongue flute, um, very beautiful. And Baird packs so much into each of his pieces, and it's a lot to take in all at once. And it reminds me of you know, my father when he was in the army. He heard Berg's violin concerto, and he didn't understand it. And he told a friend, I, don't, I just don't get it. And the friend said, listen to it every day. This was a, you know, a 78 that they had in the army. And, 
Uh, he said, listen to it every day and you'll get to like it. And it became one of my father's favorite pieces, um, just through, through repeated listening. But I mean, a piece like this, the three pieces for orchestra, just there's, um, the ear can't take in everything. So um, uh, everything at once, it's just a lot. We also have to remember, we have to keep in mind that when Berg was writing, this was 1913 to 1915. So right when World War I was devastating Europe, uh, so that enters also into the intensity and sometimes violence of this music. The second piece in the three pieces is Rigen, which is usually translated as round dance and sometimes as rounds. And this is, this is uh, the piece which in contemplating um, this th these three pieces as a symphony, he was thinking of scherzo and slow movement in that order. And he also makes connections between Reigen and Wozzeck, which was the opera he was writing, sort of put aside to write these three pieces. And we also hear maybe a premonition of Ravel's La Valse, uh, written two years later, and similarly uh, evoking a kind of decadence and crumbling of 19th century culture in the face of a horrific war through a kind of um, strange, quirky, um, waltz movement. And so let's listen to Reigen. This is about one minute in, and it's almost like a, a band of street musicians in a way. Already, as you're listening, you might hear connections between these three pieces. You might say, oh, the celesta in this third measure plays the same passage as we heard in the celesta at the end of the previous preludium. And you might not even think that on a conscious level, but if you listen to these three pieces with open ears, you do pick up on all these connections, very carefully organized by Berg. Uh, he wasn't one of these composers who just sort of writes what they feel, you know, who just emotes on the page. Um, composers that we've all met, I think. Uh, everything has a purpose down to the last minute detail. And of course, we hear this off-kilter waltz. We think of Mahler, uh, who is always present in some form. It's no accident that Berg used these popular dance forms, which we love so much in Mahler's orchestral writing, because Berg was thinking of how Mahler used folk songs, military band music, waltzes, uh, street music. Often they appear unexpectedly, just coming in from nowhere, um, so that they emerge uh, similarly in these three pieces. Or rather, they seem unexpected, but they are so beautifully and carefully calculated that they seem surprising, but also inevitable in some way. 
Mahler is also present here in the long, lingering melodies that stretch on and on. You hear his orchestration combining brass with swirls of harp and the swelling melodies uh, and the hairpin crescendos and decrescendos. And we hear actual quotes from Mahler's symphonies. The um, Mahler's Ninth is here, his Third is here. You might uh, pick up on that tonight, but it's again, it sort of sometimes happens on an unconscious level that we hear these things and know them from somewhere and they're familiar. Um, that's all part of the experience. So again, if we hear this as very late Mahler, that is a way in. Uh, but it's also music that's so dense and contrapuntal that it's difficult for us to process. It's all coming at us at once. Just as Michael Tulsa Thomas said, it's hard to grasp on when listening. The third movement, the march, uh, begins by evoking mar marches from Mahler, the fifth and sixth symphonies. And listen, listen again to the transparency of the writing uh, for brass and strings and winds. Curiously, Berg composed this movement first, but it was the last to be premiered because um, it was difficult for the orchestra to play. They needed more rehearsal time and also some revisions. So seven years after the premieres of the two movements, this third movement, the march, was premiered. We'll listen to just the beginning. that one really, really great thing about going to a, a concert, to, going to hear the LA Phil is, is the visual experience. And that it's one thing, I mean, it's so different from listening to a recording because you can really see what's going on. And that's, I think that's so wonderful. And it is in a way, uh, it, it's, it almost replicates looking at the score uh, to see how Berg is combining instruments, how he's using all these you know, monumental forces in the orchestra. So this is going to be just a fantastic experience. Now we come to Mahler himself, uh, but not one of the big symphonies that inspired Berg for his three pieces for orchestra. Uh, this com composition, Blumina, the title means flowers or blooms, has a fascinating history. Mahler included this movement in his first symphony, uh, his Titan, but after three performances in 1889, 1893, and 1894, he decided to remove it, partly because of negative responses from the critics, one called it trivial, but also because he just felt his symphony was better without it. Then the score vanishes. 
until 1966 when a writer named Donald Mitchell was writing a biography of Mahler and discovered the manuscript for Blumina at Yale University. It had belonged to a Mahler student named Jenny Feld who left it to her son who auctioned it off at Sotheby's in 1959 and then it was purchased for the Osborne Collection at Yale, so it ended up there. A year later, after the manuscript's discovery, Benjamin Britten conducted the 20th century premiere. This was 1967 at the Aldeburgh Festival, so this was the first time the music had been heard since 1894. Since then, Blumina has been performed, as we hear it tonight, as a standalone work, but there are conductors who believe it should be reinstated in Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Maybe they just feel it's not long enough already. L let's talk a little bit about the music. Mahler wrote Blumina in 1884, his first sketches, as incidental music for the staging of a poem describing a scene of a trumpeter serenading his sweetheart across the Rhine River. So the the song carries over the Rhine, and that explains the prominent trumpet solo. Here is how it begins. begins and ends with this lyrical cantilena for trumpet. And it's hard to imagine that Mahler later called this his blunder of youth. And part of, the, part of his um, extracting it from his symphony also had to do with the similarity between this melody and um, Brahms' first symphony, uh, the, 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 same, the same melodic um, frame, anyway, the same, the same melody. Uh, and so it, it's interesting that we have this sort of anxiety of influence in this program tonight 
because Berg writing about Mahler and Mahler uh, quoting Brahms accidentally and then taking his movement out. And we end the program tonight with Brahms. But this has so much of what we love about Mahler, the long, long lyrical lines that stretch on for so many measures and just go on and on and float and we sing along with them and we sort of run out of breath as we're singing internally. Um, and the swelling phrases, it's so incredibly romantic and the ingenious dialogues between instruments. And we hear these very small orchestral forces, not like the masses of brass and winds in Berg's Three Pieces for Orchestra. It's not an audacious or challenging piece, it's just a beautiful, simple uh, serenade. And in a way, that's enough. You know, I think of, I think of this slightly like going to a museum like the Louvre or the Metropolitan Museum and just being overwhelmed and exhausted. And that's sometimes what a Mahler, one of the big Mahler symphonies can be like. It's just so much and you're trying to, you're taking in so much and that this is more like looking at one, one fabulous painting and just enjoying one thing. Uh, so this is a, this is a, a small piece um, very beautiful, you know, kind of incredible history, uh, Blumina, and very, very um, worth hearing tonight. And, and this is the way the concert starts. So Brahms Concerto Number no. 1, Piano Concerto Number no. 1, takes up the uh, entire half of the, the second half of the program tonight. It's a big, big, Big piece. Is this a favorite concerto of anyone in the audience tonight? Favorite concerto? Uh, it's it's curious. It's a curious concerto. It's interesting because Brahms wrote it when he was very young. He was 25 when he finished it. But it's such a mature work. It doesn't seem at all like this is, you know, early Brahms as opposed to late Brahms. Um, it began as a symphony. And then he thought it should be a sonata for two pianos, and finally this piano concerto. So I think we have to think of this concerto in the context of his deep, deep friendship with Robert and Clara Schumann. He was in his early 20s when he met them. This was right before he started composing this concerto. He was a young, unknown, aspiring composer. He played them some of his music and both Robert and Clara recognized his talents and became great supporters and advocates of the young Brahms. And Robert Schumann wrote about him and it sort of um, jump-started Brahms's career. He became famous overnight through what Schumann wrote about him. And as you probably know, in 1854, Robert Schumann tried to stop the voices in his head and the incessant music in his head by jumping into the Rhine River in a suicide attempt. He was rescued by fishermen and asked to be taken, he asked to be taken to an asylum where he would die two years later and he would spend the rest of his life there. And the terrible thing is that Clara Schumann was forbidden from uh, visiting him. She was denied visiting privileges and for such a close couple, this was really devastating. Brahms, on the other hand, could visit and, and uh, throughout his friend's confinement, 
he was a constant source of comfort to Clara Schumann and also, of course, after Robert Schumann's death. So this is what was going on when Brahms was writing his great D minor concerto, which took, it was sort of over a span of about five years, four years. Um, he kept revising and rewriting until he had gotten it exactly right. And during that time, Robert Schumann had died at the age of 43. Brahms premiered it himself with his great friend, Joseph Joachim, conducting. Let's listen to the opening. We hear a stark, angular jab of clarinets, bassoons, timpani, violas, and basses. And they sustain this ominous low D. And then the strings enter uh, in this sort of wrong key of B flat. So we have the, um, you know, the sort of, we have this, so this is D minor. We have this, and then here's, here's how the strings end. Um, sorry. I have to practice this piece, but, um, so it's just very strange to have this in a, in a, uh, in a concerto of this, um, date, and one of Brahms's biographers, Jan Swafford, pointed out that it, when, at the time Brahms premiered this concerto in 1859, audiences thought of concertos of the day as virtuosic brilliance, dazzling cadenzas, not too many minor keys, not too tragic. And to the degree that these were the rules, the D minor concerto violated every one of them. One critic wrote about the premiere that it is a composition born to the grave. This work cannot give pleasure. Save its serious intention, it has nothing to offer but waste, barren dreariness, truly disconsolate. Its invention is neither attractive nor agreeable. And for more than three quarters of an hour, must one endure this rooting and rummaging, this dragging and drawing, this tearing and patching of phrases and flourishes? Not only must one take in this fermenting mass, one must also swallow a dessert of the shrillest dissonances and most unpleasant sounds. And he's made his, the piano part as uninteresting as possible. It contains no effective treatment of the instrument, no newest ingenious passages, uh, and plus, um, it's immediately crushed and suffocated by a thick crust of orchestral accompaniment. And it must be observed, finally, that Mr. Brahms's piano technique does not satisfy the demands we have a right to make of a concert player of the present day. So it's a great tribute to Brahms that he was not crushed by that criticism, as many would be. Uh, and his premiere was also welcomed by some critics and colleagues who understood him and knew that the concerto would eventually be recognized as a masterpiece. Donald Tovey calls this the greatest utterance since Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So this is the, this is the opening. Um, of the concerto. This is Emmanuel Acts at the... comes in, it's very, you know, it's a huge contrast, right? 
Um, it's a huge contrast. It comes in this beautiful, expressive melody. Just this, this, you know, very, very beautiful. Um, I, I played this when I was much too young. And the other thing about this concerto, it's so hard, and it's a tribute. I think it's one of the many, many wonderful things about Emmanuel Axe is he just comes out and says, "This is really hard. This is a really, really hard piece." And he's been playing it most of his life. But it has these, these ferocious, I mean, one of the many things is these, I don't know if any of you play this piece, but it's got these, which I can't even play because I have small hands. And it's written for, you know, you're, you're going octave and then, then trill. Uh, so you have to keep, it's very, very hard. And, um, but also a sublime, a sublime piece. Um, and I, you know, sometimes I feel like this concerto has all the technical challenges, but not the big payoffs of other romantic concertos. There's something a little bit cerebral about it, but there's also this monumental sense of scale and grandeur, uh, and it is it is a great, great piece. But I, you know, I mean, the critics, um, you can see that people were uh, astonished when it was premiered. The second movement opens with this amazing series of suspensions, which seems like a chorale or a hymn. And Clara Schumann, um, Clara Schumann said that there was something spiritual about it. So this is the opening of the second movement, uh, of the piano part. Very, very beautiful, um, and uh, Brahms was also ingenious from the very beginning with polyrhythms in this piece, like triplets in the left hand that lilt against a melody in 4-4 time. There's a sense of floating and buoyancy that he achieves, which also shows up very much in his later great solo piano pieces, opus 118 and 119 and so on. So it, it set the stage for a lot of his um, later piano music and also, of course, the great piano concerto number two. The last movement is often compared to the last movement of Beethoven's third piano concerto, and there are some resemblances. The piano begins solo, a rondo with running 16th notes, and then the orchestra answers with the exact same passage, just as it does here. But it's also, of course, pure Brahms. There's nothing derivative about it. It's a perfect example of a composer in his 20s calling upon inspiration from the past, but also forging ahead with a distinct creative voice. Here is a little bit of the third movement. Again, Emmanuel acts at the piano.
very exciting piece. Um, I, so, uh, any questions or comments? I think, I think that's it. Thank you so much for coming this evening. Thank you.